नमो तस् भगवत अर्हत सबुत नमो तस् भगवत अर्हत सबुत नमो तस् भगवत अर्हत सबुत good afternoon everybody i think you can hear me well yes so this is the sunday talk so it's my turn and the tea, the topic is the power of precepts so i'll start with a verse from the dhammapada venerable ananda that is the attendant of lord buddha he was contemplating on his own that uh, the scent of the flower goes blows with the wind and he was thinking is there any thing that goes against the wind or goes in both ways with the wind and against the wind so he was contemplating and reflecting this he being the attendant of buddha he has the opportunity to put these questions to lord buddha so he approached buddha and asked this question is there a scent that goes against the wind so then buddha gave, uh, uh, recited this verse which the meaning is the virtue pervades in all direction yes the scent of the flowers blows with the wind but scent of virtue pervades in all direction so what's virtue if you if you expand it a bit if if somebody has good moral conduct that spreads in all direction even if a person if you speak of a person if before a person comes to to do a job or come to the monastery or something like that people speak of the goodness of that person the good moral conduct of that person so that's how the virtue pervades because when one behaves in a moral way when the moral conduct is good people speak about it even when the person is not there even before the person arrives people speak about the moral conduct of the person and even when the person is no longer there this speech you can hear people speaking good about people so that's what it does having a good moral conduct living by precepts so moral conduct in buddhist teachings there's these there are these precepts let's uh, we have the five precepts we have the five precepts the eight precepts the 10 precepts so the five precepts if we start with the the five precepts because all human beings are a human a human being is defined as one who keeps the five precepts so the five precepts are not killing not stealing not committing sexual misconduct not lying and uh, 
not consuming intoxicants which alter the state of mind and lead to dullness. So these are the five precepts. That's, these are principles. These are principles people take up voluntarily. It's something to practice as human beings. So when we don't take somebody's life, when we don't kill, we give them, we give the life back to the person or to the insect or the animal. And when we don't steal, we are not taking something that belongs to somebody else. And if we think of oneself, we, we don't like people harming us and we like to protect our life. So in the same way, we have to reflect the others have the same way of thinking. So that's why we give them that fear, that security, not having fear, protecting their life, protecting their belongings. So that is something we give. We give them something. We offer them fearlessness and security. And that's how trust is built, isn't it? So that's how the, the morality or the moral code is established. People have trust in oneself and this spreads in all directions if one can build up that trust. And it's the same with the not committing sexual misconduct. So we behave in such a way that the par our partners, the partners you live with can trust each other, so we're giving them this capacity to have that trust, and that's what's developed, and not lying. And that's the same, people can trust each other, that's how trust is built, by speaking the truth. And the intoxicants. When we take intoxicants, that alters the state of mind, yes? Once we went recently to a particular event and then one of the monks who was a prison chaplain was explaining how most of the prisoners, yes, majority of them I suppose, have committed these acts of offenses after taking drinks and drugs. And the sad part of it is they can't remember what they've done because they were under the influence of the drugs and the intoxicants. So when you hear that, when I heard that, I thought it's how sad because it is this influence, under the influence of intoxicants, one has committed this act which one was not aware of. So why take substances that alter the state of mind? That's why this precept is important because it may start with small quantities, yes, but it can lead to an addiction. So that's why the fifth precept is so important, how keeping that precept, one can break all the other precepts. If one keeps that precepts, 
one can abstain from breaking the other precepts because one's mind is in a good place. So that's, those are the five precepts. And thinking of alcohol, I remembered, you know, uh, it, it, it has a taste, I suppose, for everybody. I remembered when I was growing up, we had a, when we had tummy ache, we were given a teaspoon of brandy. And this uh, bottle of brandy was hidden by my mother in a cupboard. It was under lock and key. Because I can remember, uh, I, I, we have one teaspoon, and you feel, ooh, and can I have another teaspoon, please? So it has that effect. So fortunately, she was, you know, wise enough to hide that bottle of brandy, and we only had it when we had the tummy ache. And I was, when I was reflecting on what to talk about today, the five precepts, I remembered that incident. So that's how the mind can be addicted. So then we have the eight precepts. The eight precepts are, there are three are added to the five precepts. That is not eating after midday and not uh, taking part, not having entertainment, uh, adornment and beautification, and the eighth one being not sleeping in high or luxurious sleeping places. There, there's nothing wrong in any of these things, eating after the midday or taking part in uh, music, you know, having entertainment or beautification, it's, or sleeping on high places. These are renunciant aspects. These are renunciant precepts is just to uh, make oneself go beyond the five precepts, giving us the chance to experience renunciation, having thoughts of renunciation, what it does. So not eating after midday, what it does is we keep the eight, we keep the ten precepts, so it's one of our precepts. So it helps us to eat in moderation, and uh, to exp sometimes we do feel hungry, and what happens is all we have to do is have a hot drink, and the hunger is gone. So once we get used to it, we realize how useful it is. But it's not that everybody has to do it, but it's good occasionally to be able to practice the eight precepts just to experience it, what it does, you know. So that's a, that's a renunciant aspect. Then the same with the entertainment, beautification and adornment. It's also a renunciant aspect to see what entertainment does and uh, see whether when, if one gets carried away or not. It's just practice when it's useful when it's, one is ready to see the renunciant aspect of life. And sleeping on high places, I think what happens is we become, uh, it, it leads to some kind of uh, laziness or, well, it has this, Place because 
we still sleep the amount of time. You know, we, we still have normal sleep in sleeping on a low bed, but uh, it gives us the opportunity to check what it does because sleepiness or indulging sleep can bring about uh, dullness in the mind. Yes, sleep is necessary. We need sleep. But oversleeping or indulging in sleep brings some dullness into the mind, laziness into the mind. It's one has to experience it. Well, that's what I have observed over the years by sleeping on a simple, normal bed. So that's the eight precepts. And then when it comes to the ten precepts, that's giving up money. Well, that's for the samanas. So that, that aspect makes us practice the eightfold path, really. That's, that's the basis for the monastics, the, the, the rules monastics keep based on ten precepts. It leads to uh, developing the eightfold path. So these are the precepts that are available. So these precepts, keeping these moral principles voluntarily is what bring about virtue. And that's the power of the precept. So Buddha went to say uh, a seed is, or seed or plant life is based on earth. Earth is based on the earth, established on earth. The plants have the opportunity to grow a seed or a plant. In the same way, the foundation, the virtue, allows, that's the foundation for the eightfold path to be developed. So that's the uh, foundation, virtue, that's the foundation for developing the Eightfold Path. So how does one accomplish virtue? Well, we know what the, keeping the precepts, it's one bring about the morality or the virtue. How does one accomplish this? Keeping the precepts, yes, following the precepts make us grow in our morality and develop our virtue. And the second, another way of accomplishing this is being in places, you know, one has to uh, associate and be in the right place. Because if, if we are in a place where we are not having the opportunity to uphold our precepts. That means we are in the wrong place. We must avoid those places. That's one way of helping ourselves to keep the precepts. So avoiding places that we can't hold the, pre the principles or the precepts we are accustomed to. And also being around people that help us to keep the precepts, encourage us to keep the precepts or even people, be around people who will develop even higher, go high, allow us to go higher, keep the higher precepts. So hanging around people who encourage us to keep precepts. 
So this is something one has to do in order to keep the precepts and develop virtue. So sometimes watching certain movies or listening to news, reading newspapers, because the media is bombarding us with news. Yes, there's a lot of news, uh, the social media, whatever is going on with the internet at the moment. This allows us to have a lot of information. So this information, information is useful, but one has to know where to draw the line. Is this information useful? Is this information that's coming into me, is it helping me to hold the precepts I'm holding? Or does the mind take me somewhere else, hearing this information? Or sometimes the songs or music we hear, because the lyrics can be so, uh, not very skillful lyrics, lyrics are here, that there are songs which are not that helpful in uh, keeping the precepts. So listening to, we have the choice to listen. We have this choice to listen to the right information, take the correct information, because it's the information we take, it affects the mind. So we need to, if we are to keep the precepts or if we are to hold the moral code and if we are to develop virtue, we need to find places to hang around, go to places that help us uphold the moral code or uphold the precepts, or, and at the same time, uh, the information, the media, that we live in, a, in an age of internet and the media bombarding us with a lot of information. So how to hold that medium, you know, how to, discipline oneself where to draw the line. No, this is enough news I've heard and this is enough. One has to know what's going on, but how much one indulges in this news and everything that we is available. So that way we can choose the time and the place, you know, where who we associate, where we go in order to help us keep these precepts. And then, as another thing, we can, we have to be honest to ourselves as well. Because if we are, if we have, because wrongdoing is, it's normal, human beings do make mistakes. It's, there's nothing wrong in me making mistakes because we learn through mistakes, mostly because uh, it's pain that treats us, make us learn something rather than the pleasurable feeling. Because if we have made a mistake, it's best to be honest to oneself and ask for forgiveness. Because sometimes maybe we said a lie unintentionally or just explain and asking for, ask for forgiveness afterwards. Be honest and forgive oneself as well, because that's important. To be honest and be open to this mistake 
and uh, let it let it be known to oneself this was not r- done rightly i'll endeavor to do better so that's developing hiri otapa that is hiri otapa is moral having being being sorry for what one has done wrong and otapa means having fear of wrongdoing knowing the consequences of wrongdoing because once we reflect on these wrongdoings we will take make amends not to you know if we do it not make effort to not to do it that's the kind of effort one has to put that's the right effort one has to put reflecting and seeing the dangers of it and uh, avoiding so really precepts is one can follow the good ones and one can abstain we can abstain from doing wrong so that's how precepts are formulated so doing that having the hiryotapa that is hiryotapa is the guardians of the world because because as human beings we know what's what's right and wrong we have been we have that sense so having this uh fear of wrong doing and the consequences of wrong doing and the, and knowing that it's wrong is a advantage the human beings have so to use it and use it in day to day life when when we act and speak to use this quality the hiriotapa and also one can use sense restraint that is sense restraint is we have five sense doors that's the eye ear nose tongue and body how we restrain these senses because whatever we see here we deliberate in the mind so we can restrain this eye and the ear that is again what we choose to see what we choose to hear we can restrain ourselves in order to protect the mind so that's one way of cultivating virtue that will help to keep the precepts so there's something that buddha has explained in another simile when one's mind is protected one's deeds one's physical and verbal and mental deeds are protected when one's deeds are protected they are not corrupted when one's deeds are not corrupted the deeds are not rotten so a person who has followed this and whose deeds that's physical mental and verbal deeds are not rotten will have a good death so it's like a house if you think of a house which has a good roof if the roof is good and uh, 
So the roof peak is protected, the rafters are protected, the walls are protected. So the whole house is protected with the having a good roof. So that's the value of keeping these precepts and making the effort to live by these precepts. How it will, how it will help us in life. And these, uh, as human beings, we have three kinds of uh, deeds. That is, we have physical actions, verbal actions, and mental actions. So physical actions, are, if you connect it to the precepts, the physical actions are not killing, not stealing, and not committing sexual misconduct. And the verbal actions are not lying for now. There's more to it, but, but it all starts with the mind, isn't it? We need to protect the mind, because if the mind is protected, our deeds are protected. So it begins with the mind, how to protect the mind. When we do good deeds, we can recollect our good deeds, yes? When the mind is low, when we are at a low place, if we remember these good deeds, the mind is uplifted. Simply even having the opportunity to uh, stopping oneself from lying, catching oneself before lying, just remembering that, just recollecting one's own virtue, one's mind is uplifted. When one's mind is uplifted, there's joy. And when there's joy, the mind is concentrated. And when mind is concentrated, we can see things as they are. We see things clearly. But when the mind is ag agitated, we don't see things clearly. So recollect, uh, re recollecting one's virtue helps us to lift the mind. This is one way of doing virtuous acts and remembering them and using it to help us to uplift our own mind when we need it. So we can use our own virtuous acts, remembering them, reflecting them, to reflect and uplift our own mind. And also, Buddha went further when he advised Rahula. He was, what he was saying is, whenever one does a physical, verbal, or a physical or verbal, bodily or verbal act, deed, one must reflect before doing the act. Does this act lead to Affliction to oneself or to the others, or both. And reflect whether this act 
has, is it a skillful, unskillful act or a skillful act, which will yield in unfortunate consequences. So when one reflects like this, this is one has to bring awareness to oneself to reflect like this. And if we reflect like this, and if we see that this particular act is bringing, is not, uh, is bring, is not bringing skillful, it's not skillful and it's bringing, not bringing skillful results or beneficial results to oneself or to others, it's best not to do that act. But if it brings beneficial, uh, it brings benefit to oneself and others, we carry on that act. And in the same way with verbal deeds, verbal conduct, when one reflects before speaking, having that awareness to reflect whether does this, if I say this, does it bring conflict to one, you know, to everybody or is it bringing affliction to oneself and others or is it beneficial? Just, just having that moment of awareness to reflect and if it, one thinks that it is not, it's best not to speak. And if it does bring good results, when one can speak. So this is before doing bodily actions or verbal actions. Then he was saying, while doing, while doing an act of a bodily act or a, a verbal act, that is speech, while doing it, to reflect. To reflect and be aware of the words or the act one is doing and see whether it brings affliction to oneself or the others, or whether it will bring uh, unskillful results. And if that's the case, not to speak so such words or not to carry on with the act. And if it brings good results and it's beneficial to oneself and others to carry on with the speech. And he was also saying, once an act has been completed, once a conversation has taken place, it's best to reflect on it. And then, when we reflect like that, then we can correct oneself. And then only we can, if we see that, oh, it didn't go so well, we have the opportunity to ask, ask for forgiveness and uh, make amends not to do it again. So have that wisdom to see where it went wrong. And this is how we live the life in a dhammic way, using the precepts, using the virtue, using the teachings. How we can carry on day-to-day -day activities, day-to-day -day life in a way that is beneficial to oneself and to others. So there are lots of tools that are available in Buddha's teachings like this and then to do it 
what comes to my mind straight away is putting right effort. Because we have to have the right effort to have this kind of reflection and being able to reflect and see whether it's beneficial or not. Because the right effort is to see if something is skillful to develop it more, to maintain it and develop it more. And if it's something is unskillful, to make, put the effort to stop it and, and prevent it happening in future. This is the right effort that comes in the Eightfold Path. So, you, when we reflect like this, the factors on the Eightfold Path is very much useful to live the day-to-day -day life. We can use in our daily activities. So uh, there's another list of things that Buddha has explained about apart from the precepts. Yes, the precepts uh, help us to develop virtue and uh, if we keep the precepts, it's, it's again a set of principles which help us to build our virtue. And on top of it, he has explained about, he has, he has given a list about 10 skillful acts. And that is divided into bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts. And the bodily acts are again not killing, not stealing, and not committing sexual misconduct. But on the speech level, there are four on that list. That is not lying, uh, not using harsh speech, and not bearing tails, and not have doing having a frivolous talk. So that is. On the speech level, he's gone to f uh, the lying, apart from lying, he has added three more to that list. So this is, you know, in, in monasteries we use these principles very much and that helps us to keep the harmony in the community because not using harsh speech and uh, not tail-bearing and not gossiping, really. That helps to keep the harmony in the community because we may stop uh, physical you know, acts like killing and stealing, but the verbal daggers can carry on because they can be very harmful. Speech can be used in a very harmful way. Communication can be used in a harmful way to... Uh, harm each other and that's something one has to take uh, care of especially living in community but in household life as well it's it's something we all can practice yes because uh, we can hurt each other with speech a lot and when we say what happens here, we, we take tales from here to there and there to here. What's the intention behind it? 
What is the intention behind tail-bearing? Try to divide people, you know, just to create unnecessary uh, agitation or putting people in difficult situations and uh, making them do or say things that if he hadn't known that, if, he, if they knew it, they would behave in a certain way. If they hadn't known it, they, wouldn't have be, they will behave in a different way. So just seeing what benefit these tail-bearing and what's the intention behind it. Is it really necessary to pass this information from one place to another? And also gossiping. That also one can investigate what's behind it. Is it really beneficial? So we can reflect, just like Buddha advised Rahula, is this beneficial, gossiping in this way? So speech is very, uh, we, we interact because we need to communicate with each other, definitely, but put special emphasis. We may be not, you know, uh, doing physical harm to each other or not stealing and not committing adultery, but that's very good. We physically abstain ourselves from these things, but verbally also we can exercise this in a more active way, seeing what the speech does in being in family life or in working in offices, what it does, what the speech does. And the last one of that category, so he has, uh, of those 10 skillful actions, the last one is the mental actions. So everything begins with the mind, really. The mind, if the mind is in a good place, the physical actions and the verbal actions will follow. So the three categorized under the mind is covetousness, ill will, and right view. So, covetousness. It's, we are con we're constantly lacking in things, yes? That's the nature of our mind. There is this lacking nature wanting something because we see something advertised or we some a friend having something we immediately want to have it for ourselves wanting something since we may be having a house but if we see a house we think oh it's it's nice to be in a house like that that's 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 that wanting the wanting we have not being contented with what we have and see when there is this wanting, how the mind behaves. Because the more, uh, along with the wanting, the ill will comes because we seek pleasure. There's nothing wrong in enjoying things or seeking pleasure. But if we are caught up in it and we 
we try to get whatever somebody else is having because somebody else is having it, therefore I need it. And we try our best to get it, but when we don't get it, what happens? It, it's immediately followed by ill will, yes? It's normal, we get angry. Tried our best, but it didn't come my way. So, along with this covetousness, ill will is followed by it, yes? If you think, take your own examples. I mean, if you take our own examples, we can see this happening. How one chases something and uh, when it doesn't come our way, there's the sadness and the ill will. And, uh, and it's in, in this thing, what Buddha was saying was, with covetousness, the mind gets polluted. And then followed by ill will, it leaves a stink in the mind, you know, it stenches the mind, ill will. So take your own examples because it's the quality of the mind that we are working on with Buddha's teachings, yes? It's a mind training, a set of principles to train the mind. And being aware of what enters the mind. Because these defilements, these advantageous defilements, they enter the mind. They enter and they leave, yes? They're not there all the time. So it's having that awareness to see this arising of defilements and what it does to the mind, how one behaves with a defiled mind. That's the one to observe. If you observe and see the process, it's not that we are trying to stop everything because it's not possible, it's, that's not what we are here for. It's just observing the process. Observing the process, how something enters the mind, how the mind takes hold of it, and how the quality of the mind changes with it. And one, at, one acts with the body or with speech accordingly. So just observing this process and understanding this process, that's all one can do. Once we observe and understand this process, we can master it. First, we have to understand, observe and understand. We can't get, we're not here to get rid of things straight away. Oh, ill will is bad, so I get rid of it. Lustfulness is bad, I get rid of it. No, it's just that it has a reason in the mind. And how we act when it has a reason in the mind. Ill will has entered the mind. And how we act with ill will. When we observe and uh, understand this nature, we can master our own minds. We are aware that ill will has entered. We are aware that lust has entered. So we take extra, we become extra vigilant because with awareness we act, okay? If we are acting without awareness, if we don't know what has entered the mind, 
the consequences are great. But if we are aware that what has entered the mind, we can put the effort, we can reflect, and we can reduce the damage to a certain extent. And even if we realize it afterwards, that's what the, the whole thing about Hiriyotapa, we have recognized we didn't do it well. So asking for forgiveness or making amends, making the effort, putting, making the determination to do it better next time. So we have this capacity before acting, while acting, and after acting. So that's what the Buddha Dhamma is providing us with. So that's covetousness and ill will. That's, it's mostly connected, as I explained. You, you can try with your own examples. And the third one in the, the mental activity is wrong will. Well, the wrong view is like flies. That's how Buddha has explained now. The covetousness pollutes, pollutes the mind and then leaves a stench with ill will. Then wrong views are flying all over the mind. It's like flies. Because if we are coveting something, we can think, oh, why? So-and-so is having it, not me. So we can form all these views about, oh, so-and-so is having it, not me. And so many views and opinions can be formed in the mind. That's what it's, it's flying in the mind. So uh, wrong view is compared to flies. But if I take another example, like a mother and a daughter, or father and a son, we, when, when, the, when the parent sees the child, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an agreeable object. Yes, it's, it's, we're, ha we're happy to see the daughter or the son. And then we think that, oh, the child will bring me happiness. And then what happens is, oh, therefore... This is my child, my happiness. Everything becomes mine. And that's how the view is created, yes? This is how a view is created. So that's wrong view, yes? Yes, it's good to have parent-child bondage is, is, is a very unique thing, but the, the child cannot make the parent happy all the time. We see it as something that will give us pleasure. We are the ones who are creating that view. This is pleasurable. This, is, this will give me happiness. This will give me long-lasting happiness. The child will behave in this way all the time. But as we all know, we are bound to, they are bound to disappoint us. And also, as a, as a parent, we have a duty, yes? And then seeing the child, we make plans for their future. That's fine. That's part of that's the duty. But then if we cling to these plans, if we cling to the role of fatherhood or cling to the role of motherhood, 
Making plans is fine. That's, we all have to make plans. But we cling to them. We cling to them as, this is the truth, this will happen, it's permanent, this is mine, this is my plan, my daughter, my son, and the plan will go exactly as it is. It's that clingingness, you know, clinging to the fatherhood, clinging to the parenthood, or clinging to the plan that is the wrong view. That's what mind does. And that's what Buddha was trying to uh, put these three in as mind activity, that is covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. These all, they all happen in the mind. And a lot of suffering and stresses are created because of this, yes? A lot of wrong views that are being generated in the mind. So this is not being able to see things as they are. This is how wrong views are created in the mind. We don't see that, yes, this, this is my daughter's son. This, it's, it's a bondage. It's, that's what keeps us in sansara, really. But it's there, but we can't cling to it. We can't cling to the parenthood, or we can't expect the children to make us happy all the time. So being able to have that right view in oneself, knowing how these views are created. In the same way we create the personality view, there is this body, there is this feeling, I ex therefore, there must be something very unique or solid in me. So this is what, everything starts with the mind. So how these views are created in the mind is something we can observe, we can explore and try to understand when these views are created all the time. Whenever we feel, whenever whatever we feel and perceive, we think it's pleasurable and it's mine. That's how we see, yes? We don't see it as something that is impermanent or that is unsatisfactory or as not mine. We see it in the other way. It's something we have to explore. It happens, you know, we are so used to seeing things in this way and uh, changing that way of seeing, perceiving, feeling, perceiving things. It takes a while. But to see it happening in oneself, we have this human mind and body, to be able to see it within oneself is seeing the Dhamma. We have to see it within oneself. That's the whole idea of these teachings. It's a wisdom teaching. We are supposed to observe and understand how things come into being, how they come to arise, and when, they, when we know how these things come into beings, the origin of it, then once we understand it, we can overcome and we can reduce the stresses that it creates. But first we have to observe and understand. Unless we observe and understand, we can't get, it's not a question of getting rid of things, no. It's through observing and understanding, we have experienced it 
through this mind and body, things fall away on their own. Don't, we are trying, not trying to push away things or not trying to suppress. It's through this understanding of this arising nature and how things come into being, how wrong views are created, what covetousness does, what ill will does. And understand this mind, understanding this mind, we become masters of our own mind. We don't become slaves to our mind. So the more we understand, the more we observe this, we can turn things around and be able to see how views are created and then how stresses, which we, well, I think that's the best word for dukkha, how dukkha, stress is created in the mind. Everything is created in the mind. That's where it all starts. So it's, it's a mind training. It's first thing to do is protect the mind. Then the other acts will follow, the verbal and the bodily acts will follow when you start from the right place in the mind. So that's why sometimes the sense restraint is important because whatever we see, hear, and smell, taste, and touch, these are things we take from the external sense basis because you don't have to tell the eye to look. It does it by itself, yes. That's the nature of the eye. But if we understand how to restrain what we take in, because it goes to the mind, and the mind takes its own course, seeing, hearing things. So if we understand this process, we learn how to restrain the, the other sense faculties. So we choose where we hang around, we choose what we listen to, what information we take, so having good friends, then we, we become wiser. We know how to restrain oneself, though all these, uh, the media and everything is bombarding us with, enticing us with things. We know how to restrain ourselves. And then when we restrain the other sense, five sense faculties, the mind, can do its own work, the mind is restrained as well. So this is how, that's what I'd like to share about the precepts. So just remember that keeping the precepts, we develop our virtue and then scent of virtue pervades in all direction. So I'd like to end now.